This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. So Haiti, you know, the story is a, it's a natural disaster. It happened and is how to react to it. Bougainville, the story there is a population that fought back against the system and won. But what were the costs of winning? And can they make the turn to their original goal of why they fought in the first place. So then when we look at Afghanistan, which, you you know, we start the film there, it's a man-made disaster. Oh, hey, welcome to, to Ian Weekly, and I'm really excited to have uh, Thor Newrider here with me today to talk about his new film, Disaster Capitalism. And uh, as people in emergency management, you know, it's one of the criticisms that we get frequently is that we're not putting the money into the right locations when we're doing things, and it's always... It's really in that recovery aspect of it. And I think Thor um, and his team really uncovered, in some aspects of it, appalling issues that are going on with international disaster recovery. And I know that we all want to do the best that we can do. And I think Thor has brought some really good questions. And I got to watch his documentary and I walked away there with more questions than answers. And I think as somebody who's in academics, I think that's a really great thing for us. I think you guys all should watch this film and really start the discussion about how we can do better with the funds that we have. So before we get into the interview with Thor, I just want to talk about, uh, kind of like Ask Todd, I guess. It didn't really come directly from the Ask Todd. It came from a question that was brought into one of the groups on Facebook. And it's from uh, Gilbert from Decay, Illinois. And he asked a question uh, regarding... For your emergency operations center or your mobile command post, do you have a digital antenna? Not DirecTV, not DISH, not cable, but your digital antenna. You know, I guess it's the one that replaced the uh, concept of the analog uh, antenna a few years ago. The idea of getting just terrestrial TV, I suppose, from your basic uh, NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox, and whatever your local affiliates would be, those antennas. It's kind of an eye-opening conversation, right? I mean, we always rely upon the internet. We rely upon the digital stuff coming from your cable into your EOC. And in some cases, you know, that cable is, is given to us for free and we kind of uh, rely upon that and and it may fail during a disaster. And so it was a really kind of a good conversation uh, regarding that. And so you see Gilbert, he's a meteorologist. And so he really understands that need for information coming in to your emergency operations center uh, and uh, to your mobile command post. And he talks a little bit about the fact that uh, most RVs even come with a digital antenna already attached to, uh, to the car um, and not waiting for uh, satellite and or other um, um, avenues. So I think that's kind of a, a really good conversation. So I'm going to post this back out to you guys. And if you can go into the comment section or if you want to go to forums.enweekly.com to discuss this, what kind of non-technology communication devices do you have? And what I mean by that stuff like ham radio, digital antennas, analog telephones uh, inside your EOCs. Do you have those still? 
And I think that's kind of a cool conversation to have. I know, again, Gilbert, not coming up with a, a lot of answers, but I do like the conversation that we're having. Gilbert and I kind of chatted back and forth in a, in a chat box uh, regarding this question, and I really do appreciate it. I just want to hear what you guys have to say. What kind of basic technology do you have in your emergency operations center to be able to communicate and hear information from uh, the media? So, well, let's get into that interview. Thor, welcome to, to Ian Weekly, and uh, how are you doing today? Thank you very much for having me, Todd. I'm doing, I'm doing well today. Thank you. Thor, tell me, uh, just tell me a little bit about your background and then how you got involved with the idea of disaster capitalism. So I, I've been making documentary films on one level or another for uh, close to 20 years now. My background, I started working with Ken Burns on his jazz series, and then I worked at HBO Sports for a while. They had a series called Sports of the 20th Century, which was uh, really great. We got to look into how sports and society collide and shape who we are. And, you know, that was also another great experience, but a lot of it was very historically driven. And I, I really had a desire to get into more contemporary issues. And that's when I started working on more journalistic uh, films, such as, you know, I, I worked on a number of frontline films with some really great directors. And then I decided, you know, at some point, I, I just knew I had to start working on my own ideas and projects. And, you know, it takes some time, but Disaster Capitalism is my first independent film. Produced a few films along the way from the time I left Frontline until uh, releasing this film um, late last year, early this year. And I also, I'm the director of video and I teach documentary filmmaking at the Columbia Journalism School. Um, so that right now, that those are my two jobs, um, working here at Columbia and and uh, and sharing this film and trying to get it getting it out to as many uh, eyes and people as we can. And my partners are based out of Australia, so it's a truly global so film cool. uh, from the production to who we're looking at, and we're trying to you know in our distribution take that same approach. So, what gave you the idea to research and to explore this concept of disaster capitalism? So the it's something that formed over time. I began working on a project that was looking solely at the potential of mining in Afghanistan. I was drawn into that topic by specifically by one article in the New York Times. And it just it seemed like a story that was too good to be true. You know, a trillion dollars untapped minerals in Afghanistan. If the mining industry could start, it's going to change the economy and the future of Afghanistan for the better. I, I looked at it with a skeptical eye, not necessarily because of the journalists, not because of the New York Times or anything like that. Just the reality of Afghanistan, the infrastructure that is there. You know, if you start looking at buzzwords like capacity, um, there's not a lot of capacity for heavy industry in Afghanistan. So I read it with a critical eye for those reasons. And it almost read like a press release from the Department of Defense. Um, so I began doing a little digging there. You know, fast forward a couple of years later, I, I got introduced to my film partner, Anthony Lowenstein. Um, he was on his way to Afghanistan and we were connected by a fellow uh, journalist and just Anthony talked, he wanted to talk to me and pick my brain a little bit about Afghanistan because that's what we do as journalists. We, uh, we try, we, we try and help each other out and talk about our, our experiences. And, um, he started telling me about the book that he was working on, which was very fascinating. And he said he wanted to try and make a film out of it. Um, he had been shooting along the way 
And we just started having conversations. And slowly but surely, as we were talking, and um, he's like, look, I'm coming to New York uh, at the end of the summer. This is in 2012. Uh, and I'm going to take a trip to Haiti. And that's when disaster capitalism was born. We um, we actually met three days later in person. And three days later, we were uh, on a flight to Haiti uh, and started shooting. So what started out as a story about mining Afghanistan blossomed into this idea of disaster capitalism, which is a bit of a, an, you know, I guess like an amoeba. If you talk, look at the form and you, you can follow where the story goes or try and shape it, which is a little bit difficult. But it took us a few years and we ended up with the film that... Um, is disaster capitalism. So let's talk about Haiti a little bit. Um, and, and I, a couple of reasons. One, one is it's, it's personally, we've, those of us in emergency management, it's one of those um, stories that we follow closely. And I have some questions specifically about that. So Haiti happens, and we flood in with international workers. Uh, Red Cross goes down there. Other international aid comp- uh, organizations go down there. And they start setting up camp. And then, I mean, how many years has it been since Haiti's gone? It happened, it's what, at least 10 years now, right? And uh, Yeah, it was 2010. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so eight years. And uh, so we go, th- so that occurs. And they're still not any better off than they were before. And in some cases, they seem to be worse off than they were after the the aid comes in. Why is Haiti such that hotbed of controversial, where money's being sent, but it doesn't seem to be being spent? That is a really great question. think that there's no, I mean, if, if you look at how to reform international aid, the industry and delivery systems. There's no silver bullet. I think in Haiti is there's, I don't think there's any one answer, but I think it is rooted in Haiti being the first nation born from a slave rebellion. Mm-hmm. I think the legacy of how France treated Haiti after Haitians rose up and won their independence, it basically had an embargo uh, against them for decades. And None of the the friends of France were doing any trade with Haiti. And then you fast forward into the 20th century, and that's when the U.S. really started to get involved. And we have, you know, supporting of dictators, overthrowing government, (laughs) supporting coups. And that happened all through the 20th century up until, you know, the 90s. And then the U.N. basically occupied the country when they dissolved the Haitian military. And then, you know, MINUSTA, that operation, it ran up until they officially ended it. I guess about six months ago or so. Um, so the sovereignty of Haiti has not existed um, in the way that most nations experience sovereignty. So I think that's the root of it. Um, if you can't have a government that's sovereign and can make its own decisions, can make its own trade policies, can make its own domestic policies, whether it's economic or it's agriculturally based, and it's an agrarian society. Mm-hmm. So if you have all of these things stacked against you, I think it's just, it's ripe for bad things to happen. So one of the gentlemen that were interviewed during, at the, at, in the Haiti um, episode, or section of the, of the film, he, he said, yeah, aid workers come in, they provide some services for a short amount of time, and he goes, they leave, and in some cases, it's worse than it was before. And it, does Haiti become that feel-good, for lack of a better term, that feel-good fundraiser uh, project that, that organizations will go to, to go, look, this is what we're doing, go in, film them, doing some stuff, and some, does it, you know, areas, and then uh, come back out and say, look, we've done all this great work, give us some money. Is that what's going on with Haiti as well, or am I reading that wrong? I think in some cases that's what happens. 
Haiti was, as we have, you know, one person in the film said, it's, it's like a republic of NGOs. I think, you know, there, there are all kinds of stats that were out there. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's any, anyone did a true accounting. But the number of NGOs in Haiti was ridiculous. And they weren't all just foreign NGOs. They were domestic NGOs. It's, it's almost like anybody who had an idea and in, in an entrepreneurial way is like, okay, well, this is where the money is. How can I set up an NGO and get some of this money? Uh, that there is truth to that. Um, and what we looked at, we didn't look at that issue. Haiti as a story, as for a journalist, it's so big and all encompassing. It's, it's almost easy to get lost in what your story is, the story that you're trying to tell. And what we focused on was the influence that USAID, uh, USAID has in Haiti. Um, and specifically the money that was spent for her, for, uh, not, sorry, not hurricane, but, uh, for earthquake recovery and where that money was allocated. But there is a lot of truth to the number of NGOs that are foreign NGOs and domestic NGOs that when there's so many on the ground that no one can get a true accounting of how many are there, then there's no way to track the money. And it would be, you know, that would fall on the donors. And as we know, or maybe I shouldn't say we know, um, donors do, don't do the best job in tracking where their money is and how it's actually being spent and allocated. Um, and you know, some organizations, they do a very good job of, uh, highlighting the good ways that the money is being spent and ignoring the bad ways. I think more importantly with Haiti, when you look at the amount of NGOs and foreign aid workers that flooded into the country after the earthquake, um, and this isn't to criticize them, but what it did is it really, and this happens all over the place, is it really changed the economy in, in such a way that it became unaffordable for Haitians. They were pushed out of any place where there were still standing homes. People were renting their homes and living in tents or in shacks in their back yards. And that just created an economic burden that most Haitians could not survive. Uh, I think that's another part of the story of why, as you, we began discussion about Haiti, why Haitians are doing so much worse after all this money poured in. They, you know, economically, they can't afford money. They can't afford housing. Uh, they have to live further away. So transportation becomes a huge burden. And then, um, the housing, uh, that was destroyed, that was not an emphasis, uh, on recovery efforts of building new affordable housing for people. In the film, you show Secretary Clinton talking about uh, these great homes they're building uh, kind of far away from everything. And they, they kind of show that as, a, as touting as a, as a good thing, the government, when I say they. And then you go into a little bit about the companies. And my... And, People might not know this, but my, my political leanings, I'm pretty libertarian. And so I see capitalism as a, as a good tool. And you see these companies coming in and I'm like, okay, is this, how can this be bad? And then you show that the companies that are coming in are really taking advantage of the situation and putting people in the company homes, more like a company slum, for lack of a better term, and then and really not paying them a lot. And, they, and you contrast that with the independent a woman that you guys interviewed regarding her, she was making shirts, beautiful shirts, and she's able to make a living, but she still lived in a tent. And she was talking about how hard it is to get out of that. Are the companies that are coming in, are they really exploiting the worker to the point to where it just doesn't make sense to work for the factory? Is that what's going on? I mean, and it, it seems to be that their government uh, subsidized as well, which I, I don't necessarily agree with, but they're, they're coming in, they're being subsidized by the by government, and are they really doing what they say they're doing? Right. The 
complexity of the answer to that question is, I guess that's at the heart of what we are trying to find out. So Timothy Schwartz, who's been in Haiti for over 20 years now uh, working, he's from the United States. Uh, he went down as an anthropologist and he's done a lot of work with uh, rural Haitians on the, agar- on the agrar- agrarian side and in forestry. And we talked to him at length. We're able to get a little bit of this into the film, but that company that we specifically show, they're called Sea. They are a Korean garment manufacturer. Uh, they make cheap clothing for cheap, and they have had a pretty bad track record when it comes to workers' rights, when it comes to human rights. And that company had run in, run afoul in Central America. Uh, I believe that they were, I can't remember exactly which country, but they were kicked out of one country and they were set up shop in a new country. And the Haitian government did not approach them. The U.S. government approached them. <laughs> the U.S. government said, we're building this factory uh, in Haiti. We're building an industrial park uh, and we want you to be our tenant. And they're like, we're fine. We're good where we're at. And then tax incentives started to be thrown in. Better tax incentives started to be thrown in. Moving costs were thrown in. Uh, guarantees of having free electricity, free rent was thrown in. And then they're like, okay, we'll move. That sounds good. We can deal with all of that. So it's not necessarily that say, ah, it was like, oh, we're going to go and take advantage of Haiti and we're going to go take advantage of Haitians. But they were given a deal that they couldn't turn down mm. by the U.S. government, right. not by the Haitian government. It may have been channeled through the Haitian government, but it was not their design. And so what are they going to do? They come and then, you know, apparently they're supposed to be paying a living wage. But you talk to anybody who works in one of those facilities, it's not a living wage. And I think when you throw on top of what I was speaking about previously, when you talk about the economies and thrown upside down because you have a uh, this influx of foreigners living in your homes and your hotels and everywhere that you can imagine, it just exacerbates the problem. So say, ah, isn't, they're not evil. I don't, you know, and you said that you believe that capitalism can solve these problems. I feel the same way, but what's the process? So you have this company that comes in, they get cheap labor, which is what they're looking for. They don't have to pay taxes. So what is the Haitian government getting out of it? They're not paying living wages. So where are the Haitian people getting out of it? So it's a cycle. And that's why we went to City Soleil and you see it's, it's a really horrible place to live. Right. Uh, but that's where people live. I can't call it horrible. I mean, it's someone's home. It's hundreds of thousands of people's homes, but that's where they're forced to live. And it started the same way. There was a huge, it's almost apocalyptic looking. There's a huge abandoned manufacturing, I believe it was a sugar factory. And it was the same thing. They will build a sugar factory, we'll build homes next to it. People will have a job, a place to live. And it just, it doesn't last and it becomes a slum and then it grows and grows and it becomes lawless. When people have their stereotypical visions of the lawless Haiti, like it's City Soleil, because it was for a very long time. It was a very violent place, and not for Westerners, for Haitians. Right. Yeah, the one lady, she lost her daughter, right? And she tells that story. It's, it's really heart, heart-wrenching, you know? And uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that, it's that touch right there that, that uh, really gets you going, wow, what, what's going wrong? And then that's the, that's the question. And, we're, and we are, we're, we're dumping, we being the United States government, we're dumping a lot of money into the situation, but it doesn't seem to be getting down to the people that, that really need it. And, and I have to ask the obvious question and, and maybe you don't have the answer but what is the level of corruption at the and I guess that's assumptive right that there is corruption mm-hmm. but what's the level or, or is there corruption at the at the government at the Haitian government level is there somebody that's making money in the Haitian government that that's not getting down to the people 
We did not look into that extensively. There is a level of corruption. Uh, I mean, the the government is barely functioning. There is a, a very distinct class separation in Haiti uh, between two classes of people, and it's based on skin color. <laughs> so I think with the money that's coming in, those that are in power and the access that they have to money, I think it's just inherent. I can't speak specifically about any individual or instance to where this is a glaring problem. I do feel that the people in the Haiti government that I spoke with, that they're sincere, but there are people that we wanted to speak with that we never had a chance to. So I think I should probably leave it there. Sure. And But what, one last thing to add on about the industrial park where Say Ah, the, the garment factory or, or the company that was moved into the garment factory, that was in the very north of the country. And it was, you couldn't get much further away from the earthquake and from Port-au-Prince than where that industrial park was built. After the earthquake with reconstruction funds from the United States taxpayer, we drove there and it took us about five hours to drive there. And it's probably a hundred miles. Wow. Because that's how bad the roads are. And it's extremely bumpy, as you can imagine, like a road that is basically a path that goes up and over and through a mountain range. And there weren't people affected by the earthquake there, but that's where they were building this industrial park with all of this brand new housing that looks very sound and sturdy. So the question is, why did the U.S. government decide to build it there? And two, who's going to move there? Is this a relocation program? Is that actually what it is? Because we we couldn't get answers to that. But the implication is that's what the issue is or that's what the solution is. It's built in the middle of fields where people had their farmland. And again, this is an agrarian society. So that's another layer is you're now building homes for people that aren't affected by the earthquake and an industrial park on farmland, which is one of the only things that Haitians can do on their own and sell their produce in the market. Now that's being taken away from people as well. So we didn't look at corruption because that was a lot to sort of dig into. And um, I think to look at how U.S. tax dollars are being spent on earthquake recovery, um, I thought was the story that we were looking at and as opposed to in country. And, that, and that's one of the things that we wanted to do with this film is we wanted to try and take a different lens on these stories as opposed to something that we both feel is done too often and something that we don't agree with is sort of turning the question back around. It's like, why are the Haitians in this situation that they find themselves in? We tried to take the question of how are we aiding the continuation of this misery? Yeah. And and like, yeah, yeah, this is, it's a really deep conversation. And the thing is, like I said, I walked away from there with more questions of of like, how did this get there and and why is it there? And that's why I asked that question on corruption. Like I said, it was assumptive, but it's because in my mind, I'm going, there has to be some cause of, of, of the issue and everybody it's the, the amazing part about this whole thing is it's not just a u.s problem you guys delve into an, an issue that's an australian uh, problem and it seems to be uh, very similar to the issue that happened in haiti can you talk a little bit about that the answer to that question and more when we return from our break the modern emergency manager wears a lot of hats so how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program it is a matter of time and how much is your time worth a lot TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. We offer pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations, and more, all coming from the archives of the Blue Cell. 
get a jump start on the exercise process and visit us today at www.ttxvault.com. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. Welcome back from that break, and thank you so much for listening to our sponsors. Without them, we couldn't really bring you uh, what we have. So check them out and let them know that you came from EM Weekly. Let's continue the interview. You guys delve into an, an issue that's an Australian uh, problem, and it seems to be uh, very similar to the issue that happened in Haiti. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so Papua New Guinea, there is a an island province in Papua New Guinea, which is actually closer to, or you could say it is within the Solomon Islands. It's one of those colonial line drawing scenarios uh, to where who knows why lines were drawn where they were. I'm sure that there was some sort of uh, knowledge about the resources on Papua New Guinea uh, on Bougainville. So um, it was claimed to be part of Papua New Guinea. I, I think so. There's a lot of similarities. The, the really big difference between Haiti and Papua New Guinea uh, in relation to the United States and Australia is that Papua New Guinea was actually a colony of Australia. We could never say that Haiti was a colony of the United States, but it's tr- it has been treated like one for a very long time. <laughs> so that, I think that's one big distinction. So Australia does have a political connection to the country, uh, a historic one. And so the largest copper mine in the world was opened on Bougainville uh, and was run by Rio Tinto, Australia. And you, know, you, you could just, anyone could write this story that knows anything about these issues. It's a Western company. They come in, they get what they want. Ecological conditions aren't, aren't taken into consideration. People are taken advantage of, uh, you know, workers' rights, human rights are violated. Uh, so this goes on for some time. Uh, there's a, you know, you can, there's a track record of this happening historically around the globe. So eventually the people of Bougainville, they were they were fed up and eventually they started a rebellion uh, and a you know basically a civil war and a revolution, but it wasn't people against people. Uh, it was people against a corporation which was Rio Tinto. The Papua New Guinea police and military they came in and fought this fight on behalf of the mining company and eventually Australia stepped in as well and they provided training and funding to the Papua New Guinea central government to fight the rebels of Bougainville. Um, it lasted for about a decade and no one knows for sure, but it's estimated about 20,000 people were killed on this very small island with a small population. But the Bougainvillians, they won. They won the rebellion. Rio Tinto pulled out. The central government basically took their hands off of any dealings with the island. They're semi-autonomous, the Bougainville uh, province. And for the last decade or so, it's, they've just been sort of, it's been hanging in balance. Are they independent? Are they not? They have a vote that's supposed to come up next year, 2019. So we'll see if that actually does happen. But what's hanging in the balance is not only their independence, but what happens with this huge copper mine, <laughs> which is just like a large scar on the island. The pollution in the main one of the main rivers on the island is just devastating. Uh, all the tailings, which is the rock, which used to the mountaintop, is has was has was just thrown into this river as waste 
does in these instances. Um, so the people, the leaders on the island and uh, our main character, Theonila, who's a young woman, they're fighting for true independence and they are not 100% opposed to the mine reopening, but they want to open, reopened in a different way. They want a say in how it's run. They want to guarantee that they will get revenue from the minerals that come out of the mine. And most importantly, they just want acknowledgement that of the past atrocities that were committed against them. In other words, they want an apology. Right. Um, and no one seems willing to give it. And I, it just seems like such a small thing. But that's where things stand in Bougainville. There is some traction that this independence vote is actually going to happen. Uh, Rio Tinto has released all claim to the mine. So it's between Bougainville and the central government of Papua New Guinea. Uh, that seems to be where things stand today. But Australia has a lot of influence. You know, they, they can put their thumb on the scale. And from what I understand, my partner, Anthony, who's Australian, he knows much more about this story. Uh, it was brand new to me uh, when we met. And it's an amazingly tragic story. And I can't believe I'd never heard of it. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, and me either. And you know, I'm 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 pretty globally minded when it comes to my my reading and and, and getting my information. And this is like really the first time I've heard of this the Civil War, uh, let alone just the the ecological tragedy that occurred there. You know, and and that's the thing yeah. that that really blew my mind. It's it's really in that particular case, it's really a threefold issue. Uh, one is a, a corporation that comes in and literally destroys the land and and you know takes advantage of the people to the civil war which you know people on both sides of that one uh, died and then third is a, is the is a colonial government australia in this case that kind of in one case abandoned them and in the other case you know trained troops up to to put down the rebellion and and sort of was you know apathetic in its approach to to anything on on it and and it just seems to be that how do we clean that up you know what i mean how, who who needs to come in and clean that mess that is left behind in that in that little providence you know and that's my question that came out of there yeah and i, I think that's probably why no one has given an apology because I guess once you do that, you're legally bound. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I have not worked in a large multinational mining corporation. <laughs> um, but my hunch, and as a journalist, you know, I guess we're not supposed to vocalize our hunches, but that's what I would look into if I wanted to examine more. And it's worth noting for those who haven't seen the film, because uh, neither of us mentioned it, this wasn't the 1950s. This was the 1980s and the 1990s when this happened. Right in Bougainville. So that's just worth mentioning. It's a very difficult place to get to. Um, so I could see, you know, once you, if you're a large company, a corporation, a mining corporation, and you're set up in a very hard to get remote location, you're going to want to fight for it. Indeed. Like I can't blame anybody for taking that stance, but I guess just in the manner of everything that led up to it, the involvement of the Australian government, uh, and then the way that you know, having fighting a war is probably a little bit extreme. I, I, people can probably agree with that. It's a very remote, hard place to get to and to get around. And um, so what happens with the mine? I mean, that question has to be answered. Uh, what's the price of copper? 
how much can get out, how much can one get out of the mine still, and what are the costs to set up shop again? Again, there's another apocalyptic scene. Like you have, when the company left, they literally left all of their equipment behind right. and just left. Now it's just completely picked through. Chinese scrap companies have come in and dismantled the remaining, you know, heavy movers and cranes. Uh, there's still a little bit left. But yeah, it's a bizarre looking world to someone who lives in New York City or California or you know any city in the United States. So kind of going backwards in the in the in the way things went, you start off in Afghanistan with your story, and you talked a little bit about this in the in the beginning regarding the the mines that are over there. But what really kind of got my questions up there wasn't so much the mining company, uh, although that's very interesting, but it was the small businessman that you know in some of the in some of the towns uh, that were relying upon America uh, to come in and 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 settle things down. And now there's this sense of unsecure. They're very, they feel unsecure there amongst their own uh, political uh, people. Uh, the insurgents um, are, are gaining footholds in areas. And there's a one village that they spoke to that the people are on the urge, the verge of becoming, uh, joining the insurgency. Can you talk a little bit about the the unpredictability that's there because of the American pullout, I suppose, for lack of a better term? Yeah. So, so Haiti, and you know, the story is a, it's a natural disaster. It happens and is how to react to it. Bougainville, the story there is a population that fought back against the system and won, but what were the costs of winning? And can they make the turn to their original goal of why they fought in the first place? So then when we look at Afghanistan, which, you you know, we start the film there, it's a man-made disaster. War is a man-made disaster. So what are the effects? And then I was drawn to that story, one, for what I said at the beginning about the minerals, but I started looking at Afghanistan in the first place because I'm interested in U.S. foreign policy and how it affects people in other countries. So the military is our, is our, um, strong, or our, our, our most blunt instrument of foreign policy. It, is the largest, I think, organization in the world. It has the most money that's spent, you know, in its budget annually. So I wanted to look at Afghanistan and not necessarily why bullets are flying, but how people are being affected. Right. So that's just a little background to your story. So that village is in Logar province, which is where the mine that the article uh, in the New York Times that I read was based on, uh, Einak. Mez Einak is actually a ancient Buddhist city. Um, so the mine which the mineral rights were won in a bidding process, which is up to debate how fair that was, <laughs> by a Chinese multinational consortium, which is a fancy way of saying a, a Chinese government mining company. So they started to build the housing units and started to prepare for mining when this ancient Buddhist city was quote unquote discovered and things just ground to a halt. There's an entire film calling Save Mez Einak, which is made by this filmmaker named Brett Huffman, which is a, a really great film and it really gets into those details. But that stopped the momentum of the mine opening. Now, in the concessions, people agreed with the Afghan government and with the Chinese mining company that they would relocate in order for this mine to open. And with guarantees of, if you see the film, they're going to build all this infrastructure. They're going to build a mosque and roads and schools for the entire community. Well, none of those promises were ever kept. Uh, and the only thing that was given to these people that, that agreed to be relocated has been no jobs and has been increased insecurity and, 
and has been fighting between the Afghan government and the mining company over who gets what, uh, what part of what deal is being reneged or what part of the contract is being reneged upon and by whom. So it's just been a mess. And this has been going on for about 15 years. So all of that uncertainty has led people to trust no one, basically. Mm. They don't trust their government. Uh, they don't trust their local government. Their local government, if you want to talk about corruption, most of the corruption that people feel in Afghanistan is on a local level. And those village elders, they told us stories about just how corrupt like the local police chief is, how the local, basically, governor or mayor, if, if, for lack of a better word, and not, and it's not just corruption, but there's a lot of violence that goes along with it. They talk about how sheep herders are just harassed and beaten by police officers, which is just like all these amazing stories that we couldn't include in our film. So they're, you know, at the end of their rope and they say in the film, like, you know, if someone doesn't come and talk to us with, you know, and they say, like, leave their guns off the table, which means like, let's talk, you know, what other choices do we have but to arm you know, arm ourselves and to rise up against the government. And your choices of doing that, you can either do it on your own or you can join somebody who's already doing it. And in that area uh, is basically the battle lines between the Taliban, you know, the ANA, which is the Afghan uh, National Army, their allies, which is ISAF, the U.S. military, and ISIS is there as well. And it's very close to Pakistan, so it's a porous border. And they're in a very tough spot. And we really wanted to let them tell the world, uh, you know, how that's how the sausage is made. Like this, these are the people that are being affected and that are kicked off of their land. And uh, to oversimplify like, oh, it's the Taliban and they just, you know, they just want to run the country again. It's like, it's not that simple. There's a reason why people are joining the Taliban. Right. It's not because they love war, though. A lot of people, that's all they've known in Afghanistan because it's been at war for over four decades. <laughs> but we wanted to let them explain why they're unsatisfied. And it, it's a very good argument, to say the least, of why they are unsatisfied. So there are parts of, of Afghanistan that you went into as well that, like I said, those small businessmen that were that you guys talked to, and they're talking about how just due to the uh, uncertainty and insecurity that their businesses have suffered. How do they right. feel about this entire, the, the, the insurgency, the, uh, you know, the, the Afghan uh, government, the and everything that's going on is what's the, what's the pulse of the nation I guess for lack of a better I think to, to go wholesale their view on it is the view that I would expect on you know any John Doe on Main Street USA to have in Main Street you know in um, the United States is that the insecurity is caused by a bad economy the bad economy is caused by political infighting political infighting is caused by security and it's sort of like this cyclical thing and they just want things to be as normal as possible. And when you look at the way the economy is under the current president, Ashraf Ghani, you know, this isn't a judgment on him. It's far worse. And that's because the political infighting is far greater than when Hamid Karzai was president. And if you look at the corruption of Ghani and Karzai, there's probably a really big difference. I don't know enough to put a comparison number between the two, but I think that there was less infighting because people were happy on a higher level of the government. Um, and then when they're happy and there's less infighting, there's less security issues, the economy 
runs a little bit better. Uh, the U.S. and NGOs were more involved back then, so there was more money and resources coming in through foreigners than there is now since the, uh, you know, what, 2014 withdrawal that Obama had set. Right. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. You know, that place, Bush's Market, it actually, it grew and became a very popular place because there's a lot of contraband that was sold there. <laughs> um, right. and, and there's plenty of news reports that say, you know, there's one that just came out last week about night vision goggles getting into the hands of the Taliban. It's like, where is it coming from? And some are saying it's coming from outside forces and others are saying what's being sold. They're U.S. You know, it's U.S. military equipment. That's been going on for as long as the U.S. has been there. Right. And that's, you know, a high level of corruption that not many people talk about. But, you know, there's so much you can get into, like who's paid off for these military care, you know, convoys. And, you know, the money goes back to the Taliban because they're running these checkpoints and, you know, stuff goes missing when it comes through these checkpoints. And where does it go? Some of it goes to the Taliban. Some of it goes to militias. Some of it ends up at Bush's Market, which is named after George W. Bush because they loved him so much. This is just amazing. And for anybody, I, I just highly recommend it. And we'll put the link to where you can where you can uh, purchase the the video to watch it. And we'll, we'll we'll put this on here. So if you guys are interested, please please do click on it and, and watch it. I, I highly recommend it. You're gonna really it's a really an eye opening uh, documentary, and it's 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 awesome. It's well well put together. So Thor, if somebody was interested in in learning more about your um, work, how can they get a hold of you? The best way to learn about this film, and that's solely the work that I want people to focus on, um, <laughs> I think it's the most important, is we have a website, uh, we have a Facebook page, a Twitter page, they're all linked on the website, uh, which is disastercapitalismfilm.com. And, you know, on that website, we have a page that lists the screenings. We have a, a page, which I think is really important. If anyone's interested in this film, they can host a screening. So we have a host a screening page. You can contact us through the page. We get back to you very quickly. Uh, there's links to our Facebook, our Instagram and our uh, Twitter pages. And we're pretty active about upcoming screenings and events. And, uh, you know, our main goal is to get this film into as many eyes as possible. Uh, we have a sales agent who's trying to get it on broadcasters. We've made a couple of sales. We're applying to film festivals, which is a traditional route, but having this impact outreach that we're doing on our own, uh, we think is very important because we want the conversation to grow with you know, everybody who works in this industry and anybody who's, a, you know, an informed or concerned citizen. And um, that's really what we're looking for. Awesome. Okay. So here's the toughest question of the day. What book okay. or books or publication do you recommend to somebody who is really interested in learning more about this? You know, I have to give, I can't give you just one because uh, there's, I, I have some other needs. So Disaster capitalism is a is a term that was basically it was I guess coined by Naomi Klein. So if you haven't heard of or read her book, The Shock Doctrine: The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, I think it's a must read. And then uh, Anthony wrote a book while we made this film, and it's called Disaster Capitalism: Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe. The book that I really suggest, and this goes back to Haiti, it's but it's by Paul Farmer. It's called Eighty. Haiti after the earthquake. Um, it's a collection of essays between, I think, about 10 or 15 different contributors. And they were all people that were on the ground in Port-au-Prince after, immediately after or during the 2010 earthquake. I had heard of this man named Timothy Schwartz. We talked about him a little bit. He wrote one of the essays. And after a journalist told me about Tim and that I needed to find him because he's not afraid to talk about uh, any sacred cow 
I saw that he had written an essay in here and it was very impactful. Uh, kudos to Paul Farmer for pulling it all together. But Timothy Schwartz, he basically, his article, um, his, his essay is called First We Need Taxis. Um, and it's a storytelling is, is really good because he, he talks about the need for help. So you have all of these doctors and first responders that are coming to help, which is very important. People do not, uh, we do not think that people should stop helping. We do not think that aid should stop flowing. We just think that it needs to be done in a different way. But it gets to the point, you have all these people here, but no one's thinking about logistics. Or logistics are extremely difficult. So you have this mass of people and you can't move them around. You can't get them to the right place. No one's talking. And so he... F- He's driving this baby, this infant with a crushed skull, trying to get the baby care. And doctors are like, well, I need an x-ray machine. And he's like, well, can you take this baby? They're like, no, 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 I can't take that baby. I need an x-ray machine. So he puts a really human experience on the problem. And then by the end of the essay, he's at this trauma tent uh, and he's talking and then all of these people are talking about talking about coordination and no one knows what to do. And then the end of the essay is uh, a, a woman that's at that thing. She's like, the first thing we need are taxis. So that's kind of a long story, but there are other essays, like I said, 10 to 15 essays. And and I think it, it's not like pat on the back, we're doing great, but it's here's what worked, here's what doesn't work, here's where we can improve, here's where we can get better, here's where we should challenge ourselves more. And I think that's the questions that people in the international aid industry and emergency response, that's what they should be asking themselves and of their peers. And that's what we want the film to do is we want to further the discussion. We want this to get better. I mean, we are journalists, so we're not telling people what to do, but we think it's a really helpful tool for people to have that conversation. Awesome. Well, Thor, thank you so much for your time today and uh, looking forward to uh, hearing more about the great work that you're doing. And uh, let's do this again sometime. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. And yeah, love to do it again.